Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are making the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. The CPC Charter is a small book, but it contains all the important thoughts and principles leading the world's biggest party. Each leadership has left its input, and today the thought of Xi Jinping has been written in. This week's edition focuses on China. I recorded it a couple of weeks ago at an annual conference on China and the world called the Stockholm China Forum, which brings together experts on China from Europe, the US and China itself. During one of the lunch breaks, I got together with two of the experts there, Professor Mingxin Pei of Claremont College in California and Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, who's author of a recent book called The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. This year has been a particularly turbulent one for the government of President Xi, with a crisis in Hong Kong and a trade war with the US. But I wanted to take a step back and look at President Xi's seven years in power in the round. So I started by asking Ming Shenpei if he believed there was a Xi era, and if so, what characterizes it? Well, there is indeed a Xi Jinping era, both in terms of internal politics and Chinese foreign policy. Within China, when you look at how the Communist Party is now organized and governed internally, Xi has clearly put his mark on the regime. There is a fundamental shift away from collective leadership to strongman rule. And there is also a re-emphasis on ideological indoctrination in terms of state society or regime society relations. There's a return to the rule of fear a much more repressive regime. So because something like a million people have been arrested simply under the anti-corruption... Well, uh, at least a million people have been investigated. Uh, That is, some of them detained shortly and then released. Uh, People who have been sentenced to jail, my estimate is probably around 50,000, very long jail terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and very senior people as well. Oh, very senior people. Uh, My calculation is about 14% of the Central Committee members have been locked up and sentenced. So that's a lot. (laughs) And 150 generals. So it's really uh, quite significant purge of DFGI. And in terms of foreign policy, you see a very different China, much more assertive, much more risk-taking, 
much more willing to confront the U.S. Mm. And Liz, I mean, you've written a book on the Xi Jinping era. Do you broadly concur with that? What would you add to it in terms of uh, your assessment of what it all means? No, I think Minchin has it right. Maybe I would just add, I think, a decision that he's made to develop what I would call a virtual wall of restrictions and regulations to try to limit the ability of the outside world to influence China. So you see a lot of discussion in the Xi era about hostile foreign forces. And we see you know, a law being passed to limit the number of foreign non-governmental organizations that can work inside China. So you know, before the law was passed in January 2017, before it came into force, there were more than 7,000 foreign NGOs working in China on issues like poverty alleviation and health care and the environment, and now there's something under 600. So really significant drop in terms of the opportunity of civil society and people-to-people exchanges. And you can look at something like Made in China 2025 as well as an effort, right? This you know big project that says basically China wants to control the manufacture of components in 10 critical areas of cutting-edge technology. They want to have it in-house. That's also kind of a, a decoupling. You know, and we talk about the U.S. wanting to decouple from China, but frankly, I think China is the original decoupler because it really is looking at how to limit its exchanges with the outside world. And I guess maybe just to embellish a little bit on Minchin's point about the more assertive foreign policy, I think you can see it in China's moves around sovereignty issues with Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the South China Sea. I think much more assertive there. Also the Belt and Road Initiative, this very, what has turned out to be a very grand scale initiative, even if it wasn't initially. And then I think Xi Jinping has talked a lot about his desire to have China lead in the reform of global governance. Right, and what that really means is China wants to set the rules of the game on issues like internet governance and human rights, development finance, in ways that reflect Chinese values and priorities. And that's something quite new and quite different. Mm. And Minchin, that also seems to be a real cult of personality now, so that you have Xi Jinping thought incorporated into the Constitution and people now being compelled to uh, study Xi Jinping thought, plus the abolition of term limits. So potentially, she could stay on for life. Do you think he intends to stay on for life? There's no doubt about this. I think that that intention has been telegraphed loud and clear through repeated actions. First, at the 19th party of Congress, about two years ago, there was no success made. That was very clear. And then a few months later, the term limit for the presidency, which is actually a largely symbolic position in China, was removed. So we, we should not be surprised if in about three years, the Communist Party will convene its 20th party congress and she stays on without any term limit as a party secretary. Incidentally, I think, in terms of term limit, the most important positions in China the general secretary of the Communist Party, the chairman of the Central Military Affairs Commission, the commander chief, have no term limits. The presidency is really the, sort of, the only constitutional position. And the cult of personality is in formal terms and when you look at Chinese press, it's all about Xi Jinping. There's one front page of the People's Daily, which is the official Chinese Communist Party newspaper. Every story is about Xi. And that's something we've not seen since the Maoist era. Yeah. And Liz, I mean, you were just there and you were mentioning that there is this app now, so it's a sort of high-tech cult of personality, and that people 
Is it just Communist Party members are, are told to study it? Are they actually doing it? Yeah, I have to say one of the things that I've found surprising, not just this trip, but previously, I try always to ask, you know, friends or even just people that I meet, you know, do you actually use this app? And the app, you know, Xue Xi Tianguo is basically all about Xi Jinping's activities and his speeches, his thoughts and comments. And you're supposed to study these and then you're quizzed, right? There are quizzes that you take and then you submit the quiz scores to the sort of local party chief for your, uh, you know, university or whatever it may be. And I found it hard to believe right, that, you know, senior scholars or journalists or colleagues, you know, would be actually doing this. But they are spending three to five hours a week, you know, studying and getting quizzed and submitting these scores. But maybe, maybe it's just the liberal in me, but it seems to me massively counterproductive. I mean, you've got these highly educated people. And you're humiliating them by making them study this nonsense. I think many people, certainly many liberal intellectuals who are also Communist Party members, feel this way. But I think there are probably some people who are actively engaged in it as well. I don't think we should underestimate the fact that there is a group of real believers uh, who take a lot of pride in Xi Jinping and how he's raised China's profile on the global stage, like the idea of this very strong leader. But of course, you know, if we were forced, Minjin and I were forced to study, you know, Trump, Trump thought, Trump thought for, yeah. <laughs> for five hours a week, I think we'd launch a revolution. So I, I do, I mean, I think we all find it kind of ridiculous, but I think, you know, does it speak to a strong Xi Jinping or a weak Xi Jinping that he has to demand this of people? I think that's a big question. Yeah, well, Minchin, why do you think he's doing it? I mean, do you think it's simply that he was brought up in that cultural revolution era and you were talking to me yesterday evening? I mean, it was something you experienced as well, but obviously your reaction was never again. His seems to be almost a nostalgia for it. Yeah, well... I think that's a mystery because uh, based on his own experience, one should expect that Mr. Xi would not want to go back to that era. But everything that has happened since he came to power indicates otherwise. So the question is, is he a true believer in that kind of ideology or nonsense? Or is he merely using this kind of practice to strengthen his power, to strengthen the Communist Party's control over Chinese society. My suspicion is a bit of both. I cannot imagine that he does all of these things without some kind of genuine belief in what he does. And then at the same time, it is highly effective because to impose one's will on this gigantic system, you have to rely both on ideological indoctrination, but also on the rule of fear. And in this case, you see a lot of coercive measures applied to this. If you don't input your study or your understanding of Xi Jinping's thought, you get lower scores, you get no scores, and you'll be in trouble. Right. There was actually a period of time when the app first came out where there were, you know, very smart computer programmers and others who were trying to find out ways. They developed programs so that it could look as though you were doing the actual work, but you weren't. And apparently these were quite popular, but, you know, eventually those got shut down as well. And I mean, there are two ways of looking at it, obviously. One interpretation is this shows the increasing strength, both of Xi and of China, because... You'll hear as you do a conference like this from Chinese representatives, and it's true, you know, that there's been this incredible record of economic success. China's becoming more assertive. But I know, Mixon, you think, you've described in the sessions there, this is a rotten system. So 
justify that to people who will okay. say to you know, but hang on, they've just you know raised right. 700 million people out of poverty, etc. Rotten in the sense that obviously the trends in China are very worrisome, both to the people, ordinary people, to intellectuals, to business people, and to the people within the party. But there's nothing that can be done to stop these very bad trends. And that means the system does not have capacity to correct a potentially disastrous mistake made by its top leadership. And that's why it's a rotten system. Even if it's delivering results for now? I don't think it's delivering results. I think it delivered results in the last 35 plus years. Today, if you judge the system by the results it is delivering, it is delivering very bad results. And one thing is the collapse of US-China relations. And that's a disastrous mistake. And then you look at internal reforms, very little economic reform is going on because they are spending their time reading political studies and they're trying to pass the app test. And Elizabeth, what's your sense in this sense of the strength, weakness, fragility, or otherwise, of the system as it's currently operating? I think it is very difficult to gauge, frankly. I would point out that the you know period of most rapid growth in China was also the period of real openness in China. So when we're looking back at the 12 to 14 percent growth rates, that was during a period when China was really undergoing a degree of market reform, civil society was blossoming, radically different from the China that we see now. And of course, everyone says China's at a more developed stage. It's natural that the economy would slow. But you know, we're looking at growth rates now of I think for sure under 6%. And some Chinese economists themselves have put growth even at negative rates, but let's imagine that it's 3 to 4%. You know, that's significant. And I think, you know, we're seeing knock on effects from the slowdown of the economy, sort of lowered birth rates, low rates of marriage. Those things track very closely with consumer and economic optimism. You know, people broadly in China don't feel optimistic, many of them. Um, Although the polls suggest otherwise, or at least the ones the Chinese quote. Yeah, I think we need to be careful about polling in China. I I tend to try to look for actual evidence on the ground of what's taking Mm -hmm. place because we don't know how those polls are conducted, who's being interviewed. And also, I think at various moments in time, things can look quite different. You know, if growth rate is at 8% when the poll is done, if growth rate's at 5%, pork prices are going through the roof. You know, I think there's burbling discontent within the system. Liberal intellectuals and entrepreneurs certainly are unhappy. You know, these are people whose livelihoods depend on being creative, on being able to act independently. And their world is becoming much more closed. And there's a reason why a third of people who have a million dollars or more in assets want to emigrate. So I think we can't not pay attention to these small signals that everything is not as perfect as the Chinese Communist Party would like to present to the outside world. And yet, to finish, I mean, the counterbalance that I think they're using to support the system now for internal legitimacy is maybe growth is a bit slower, but nationalism is the fuel, isn't it? And it's also something that clearly is of concern to the outside world. But again, it's a closed system, so it's hard to know how deeply it goes. So sitting outside China, what's your assessment of Chinese nationalism? both at its depth and also what it means for the outside world? Nice, easy question to finish on. Well, I'll offer a couple of thoughts and then maybe Minchin will finish up. It is difficult to know, and I just was at a conference this weekend back in Beijing that was populated with very nationalistic scholars and thinkers, frankly not the people that I normally engage with, 
and very supportive of the regime in all its forms and of the idea that China has a real model rooted in Chinese history and rooted in Chinese values, rooted in Marxism-Leninism, that it has an equivalent path to growth and development to that of a market democracy. So I think there's that one element of nationalism. And then I think the other is just the sense that when China is under attack from the outside world for its values, for the way that it's doing business, it is very easy to stir the pot, right? And to say, for example, when they have their singles day, they're gonna buy all the goods at Taobao that in fact, they're not gonna buy American goods. We're not gonna buy goods from the West. We're gonna stand up for, you know, Chinese patriots. And we'll buy Huawei phones, for example. For sure, right. So I think you can see this nationalism manifest in different ways. But again, I find it very difficult really to penetrate, to get a sense of how broad-based either you know a desire for something to be different from the way it is today or just groundswell support for the Xi era. Yeah, there is certainly a higher degree of genuineness in Chinese nationalism than people outside China know. That is why Huawei phone in China, the sales of Huawei phone shot through the roof after the US put this on the end of the list. I mean, that was actually not a government campaign, it was spontaneous. So Chinese nationalism has a lot of potency and I'm sure the Communist Party will spare nothing in terms of exploiting. Indeed, at the last Politburo meeting, the Chinese Communist Party approved a new plan to update and strengthen patriotic education. So we are going to see reliance on Chinese nationalism as one of the principal components of a new survival strategy. Okay, well, with that thought, thank you both very much. Let's go and get some lunch. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachmanreview. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.